I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. You see, Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that are a fraction of the price of mattresses one can purchase in the store. The mattress industry has for too long forced consumers to pay notoriously high markups, and Casper has had enough. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of their mattresses through cutting up the middleman, the retailer, and selling directly to you, the consumer. Now, you see, for years I've had trouble finding a mattress that has the perfect blend of bounce and stiffness until I finally received my own Casper mattress. Casper mattresses provide resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort, and this has literally changed the quality of my sleep overnight. Ha! A hybrid sleeping product that combines premium memory foam with latex foam, it has become the most awarded mattress of the last decade. Uh, Mattresses start at $500, and they go as high as $950 for a California king-size mattress. These are great prices. If you, like me, are tired of expensive mattresses not actually making your quality of sleep any better, it is incumbent upon you, my friend, to go out and get one. Casper mattresses are easy to purchase, and you can do so risk-free. Casper offers free delivery right to your door, and if you are not satisfied with your purchase, you can return it within a hundred days at no cost. Let's be honest, guys and girls, lying on a mattress for a couple of minutes in a showroom is simply not enough time to tell if that is the right mattress for you. Now, Casper is willing to give the listeners of Cool Canadian History $50 off their first purchase. All you need to do is go to the link caspertrial.com slash coolcanadianhistory. That's casper, C-A-S-P-E-R, trial, T-R-I-A-L dot com slash coolcanadianhistory. Get your purchase, get your mattress, sleep better now. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 4, Episode 5, Reflecting on the First World War. This episode is being released on November 11th, 2018. 100 years exactly since the end of the First World War. In light of this, I am attempting to do an episode that provides a broad meta-narrative of Canada's war experience, both on the Western Front and at home, as the events in one realm heavily inform the other. 
This episode will attempt to provide the broad story of Canada's role in the First World War, highlighting some of the key narrative ideas, while attempting to address the actual and at times controversial legacy of the war itself. This week's book recommendation is Jonathan Vance's Death So Noble, published by UBC Press in 1997. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the defining book on the challenges faced by Canadians across the country in coming to grips with the war and efforts to memorialize those who never returned. It is an absolute must-read for anybody interested in Canadian military history and the results of the war. Okay, so Canada's military contribution was certainly something above and beyond what anyone expected for such a small country just under 8 million people, and Canada put into uniform 650,000 soldiers. This is even more incredible when you think about the state of the military prior to 1914. We had a regular force of between 2,000 and 3,000 soldiers, and a part-time militia of just over 60,000. This meant that the vast majority of soldiers that would end up in the Canadian Expeditionary Force had little to no military experience before they went into basic training. Not to mention that until late 1917, most of the recruits were volunteers. But it is worth pointing something out in regards to who was volunteering. The vast majority of those that served were either originally born in Britain or were first-generation Canadians of British descent. The standard narrative that English-speaking Canada fought while French-speaking Canada worked is just far too simplistic when you look at low enlistment rates amongst different ethnic groups within Canada and amongst English-speaking Canadians not of British descent, as well as within rural communities that were tied heavily to agricultural industries. Even by early 1918, as conscripts started to fill the depleted ranks of the Canadian Corps, the ratio of Canadian-born to British-born in the Corps rarely exceeded one-to-one. Simply put, for much of the war, it wasn't so much English Canada fighting as it was British Canada fighting. Nonetheless, Nearly 650,000 Canadians in uniform, including approximately 3,000 Canadian women as nurses, was an incredible contribution for such a young country. This contribution would eventually manifest itself in the legendary four-division Canadian Corps. But the famous Canadian Corps only became famous through earning its stripes in combat. Numerous battle honors are attached to the units within the Corps. From 1st Division's incredible defense of the city of Ypres in the face of a German poison gas attack in the spring of 1915, to the Canadian Corps being one of the first British formations to use tanks successfully at the Battle of Flair Corselet during the Somme Offensive in the fall of 1916, to the famous capture of Vimy Ridge in April 1917 by all four Canadian divisions of the Corps, the ridge of course thought to be near an impregnable German defensive position. Or Arthur Curry's first successful command of the Corps at Hill 70 in June 1917, or the horrendous conditions of the Passchendaele battlefield in the fall of 1917, where the Corps suffered nearly 16,000 casualties to achieve vague operational objectives, only to have the Germans recapture all the territory gained less than two months later. 
and in this list I have only named a few of the battles. Regardless of the tragedy that was Passchendaele, it certainly marked a continual series of victories by the Canadian Corps stemming all the way back to the Somme Offensive. And by the end of 1917, the Canadian Corps was one of the most feared corps formations along the entire Western Front. And the Germans had become fully aware that where the Canadians were stationed, an impending attack was likely. The strength of the Canadian Corps was helped as well by its unique semi-autonomous status within the British Expeditionary Force. While it certainly was a formation under the command of the British General Staff, specifically Field Marshal Douglas Haig, for most of the war it was also answerable to a sovereign government back in Ottawa. This unique status allowed its commanders, particularly Ontario-born Sir Arthur Currie, who was Corps Commander by the summer of 1917, to carve out some leeway in negotiating the tasks given to the Corps, while also allowing it to remain far more cohesive than its British Corps counterparts. Throughout the rest of the BEF, for instance, divisions were removed and added to different Corps formations as the strategic situation saw fit. Yet, the Canadian Corps held on to its divisions for much of the war. Even in the crisis days of the German Spring Offensive of 1918, Curry was able to prevent the complete breakup of his corps to fill in the depleted British ranks. It should be noted that 2nd Division was eventually moved out, but long after the German threat had been contained. So what this all meant was that by 1918, the Canadian Corps had more men, more guns than the average British Corps, but was also strong in its organizational structure. The same officers, the same units, the same men, ranging all the way from Corps headquarters down to battalion, meant that the Corps had become a finely tuned, cohesive fighting machine. It would be the Hundred Days Campaign, from the 8th of August to the 11th of November 1918, where the power of the Canadian Corps would be put on full display, effectively enshrining the formation's legendary status as the Corps, led by Sir Arthur Curry, spearheaded the final offensive of the war that played a crucial role in breaking the back of the German army. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. But all of this came at a terrible cost. 62,000 Canadians would die through the course of the war, 172,000 physically wounded, and tens of thousands more psychologically damaged, with almost little to no support system waiting for them back home. It would be no exaggeration to claim that nearly every single community in Canada was in some way witness to the tragedy of the dead and the wounded in this most terrible of wars. Now, while the meat grinder that was the Western Front continued to devour young Canadians, the nation at home developed and matured in unprecedented ways. 
the war pulled Canada out of a recession. And by 1915, the demand for wheat and munitions saw the Canadian economy expand and prosper like never before in its young history. Canada became the breadbasket and the bullet basket of the British war effort. The Canadian government imposed the country's first ever income tax, which was said to be only temporary at the time, in order to raise funds for the war and, in fact, stepped in to control the two major war industries, that is, wheat and munitions, in unprecedented ways, creating the Wheat Board and the Imperial Munitions Board, effectively bringing both industries under the control of the government. For the first time in Canadian history, major industries were not going to be left to the machinations of the free market. The Imperial Munitions Board itself would grow so large that it had a budget three times that of the federal government, running 675 factories and employing over 200,000 men and women. In fact, 35,000 women were actively recruited into the munitions industry, marking a dramatic, though temporary, shift in accepted gender roles, as these women entered fields traditionally thought of as only men's work. This certainly set the stage for an even more dramatic recruitment of women into the workforce during the Second World War. In terms of challenging traditional ideas of gender, the First World War saw huge leaps in terms of the women's suffrage movement. By the end of the war, every province except Quebec granted women, and that's white women specifically, voting rights. And by the end of 1917, certain groups of women had gained the right to vote in federal elections. By 1918, all white women of a certain age would be allowed to vote in federal elections. It was the Wartime Elections Act of 1917 that first granted women the right to vote federally. Though this was not, and I need to repeat, this was not an altruistic act of our Prime Minister Robert Borden or his conservative government. Instead, this act was a strategic ploy to dramatically increase the number of pro-Borden supporters for the 1917 federal election, an election fought almost exclusively on the issue of conscription. Now, conscription was an extremely contentious issue as many in French Canada, particularly in Quebec with its strong munitions industry offering plenty of work, were against fighting in a war they felt was a war simply for the British Empire, an empire many simply did not support. After Vimy Ridge in 1917, Borden and many of his supporters understood that conscription was going to be necessary if the Canadian Corps was going to maintain its elite status, something Borden personally sought for his own post-war legacy. Thus, Borden set about gerrymandering the 1917 federal election to ensure victory for his new Union government. When the ballot box closed, the pro-conscription Union government made up of the Conservatives and a few pro-conscription Liberals, had essentially won in almost all of Canada outside of Quebec, and conscription was thus passed. Quebec responded with riots, and in Easter 1918, several Quebec civilians were shot and killed in a riot by the Canadian military who had been called out to pacify the streets. If it wasn't for the intervention of the Catholic Church, Canada may very well have faced an even greater schism between its English and French populations, between Quebec and the rest of Canada. Regardless, 
the legacy of the conscription crisis and the Easter riots lingered in the French-Canadian community for many bitter decades. Interestingly, while Vimy Ridge has since become a unifying symbol in Canada, it also triggered the move towards conscription, which nearly tore the country apart. So the final question is, what were the results of Canada's participation in the war? Well, the work of the Canadian Corps certainly gained Canada a greater international reputation, which the nation used to harangue the nations of Europe from its pulpit at the newly created League of Nations. As well, the military contribution of Canada became valuable rhetoric in the interwar period as both Prime Minister Mackenzie King and Prime Minister Bennett solidified Canada's near-total independence from Britain. By 1939, Britain would not be declaring war on behalf of Canada. Canada would do it herself. The veterans themselves seemed to have mixed feelings about the war. Many voiced their opinion that it was a war fought for nothing, and the sacrifices were in vain, especially in 1939 when war once again erupted. But others strongly believed it was a good war, one for the freedom of Belgium, Christianity, civilization, to stop German aggressiveness. Regardless of all this, the large number of veterans that had returned from the war became a very powerful voting bloc that would successfully lobby the Canadian government to pass some of Canada's first social welfare measures in the 1920s and 1930s designed to take better care of those who had risked everything during the Great War. There were, of course, many unintended consequences of the war that would have a dramatic impact on Canadian society. The return of so many soldiers brought with them a deadly new epidemic known as the Spanish Flu, an epidemic that would kill more people globally than the First World War itself. Approximately 30 to 50,000 Canadians would die from this deadly virus. The booming wartime economy brought with it nearly uncontrolled inflation, which in turn caused the cost of living in Canada to soar. By the end of the war, the cost of living in the country had risen by 64%. Various labor organizations who had been campaigning for increased wages, better working conditions for the working class, were stifled during the war under the auspices of the War Measures Act. These organizations finally erupted after the war into large-scale, organized, and at times violent challenges to the failure of the Canadian government to improve the lives of the working class in this country. General strikes rocked the country during 1918 and 1919, culminating in the bloody yet hugely significant Winnipeg General Strike, where the conservative government's use of the military, many of them returning veterans, to crush the strikers would be publicly condemned by many in Canada and help lead to the party's downfall in the 1921 federal election, as well as bringing greater recognition to the labor movement's legitimate goals. The war also saw the emergence of a great sense of Canadian identity and connectiveness through the process of commemoration. All across the land, cenotaphs and memorials were erected to the dead, from Victoria, British Columbia, 
to Airdrie, Alberta, to Flin Flon, Manitoba, to Thunder Bay, Ontario, Verdun, Quebec, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and even in the colony of Newfoundland, cenotaphs became the recognized form to mourn the loss of so many. And many communities now shared in the collective grief embodied in what was then Armistice Day, but we now, of course, call Remembrance Day, a dark yet poignant method by which the country collectively dealt with the trauma of the war. Now, finally, and perhaps the most difficult question to ask and answer is, was it worth it? The war was fought for many ideas. The defense of Christianity and civilization, coming to the aid of Belgium, capturing or recapturing historically important territory, stopping an aggressive Germany, and in some cases, simply a feud between rival dynastic houses. The Triple Entente won, well, the Anglo-French Entente won, but at a cost of millions. For what? A more stable geopolitical environment? Well, the League of Nations that was created in the war's aftermath to do just this was impotent from nearly day one. Was it to create a more peaceful world order? If so, then it totally failed. Numerous smaller wars erupted in the aftermath of the First World War, not to mention the disastrous Spanish Civil War, which saw major European powers get involved. And of course, the heavy reparation payments and peace terms imposed upon Germany would help exacerbate the problems during the Depression, which in turn helped contribute to the rise of Adolf Hitler. Was it to create a more stable and strong global economy? Well, there was a brief recession after the war for about a year to two years, followed by the Roaring Twenties, so this period of artificial prosperity, then followed by the worst economic crisis in the history of the world. But it should be pointed out that many in Canada and elsewhere continued to believe that this war was a war fought for the right reasons. It is difficult and often dangerous to apply 21st century morality on an event so long ago. While it is certainly easy for us now to say the war was fought for nothing, at the time, many believed that it was fought for something. Nonetheless, the war to end all wars was simply the first of two catastrophic total global industrial wars that rocked the world in the 20th century. While the First World War would become an important part of a growing sense of Canadian identity, especially within English-speaking Canada, and certainly helped fashion a sense of Canadianness amongst those who served or who had family members that served, the death of so many reminded us about the tragedy of blindly going to war. When war was declared once again in 1939, there were no jubilant celebrations in the street but a resigned acceptance that once again young men and women would be called upon to make great sacrifices. While the shadow of the Great War loomed large in Canada in 1939, the country would once again rise to the challenge and go beyond even its most optimistic expectations, once again sacrificing its youth on the altar of the goddess of war. And on just a personal note, as someone who has had great-grandparents fight in the First World War, 
and grandparents fight in the Second World War. I want to say that when we analyze the First World War, it is okay to question the war's purpose. Why was it fought? Was it a good war or a bad war? What was its legacy, both good and bad? There is a tendency amongst some people to think that questioning a war or its righteousness or justness somehow denigrates or besmirches the memory of those who served. Nothing at all could be farther from the truth. There is no greater insult to those who served than to simply accept the fact that because people fought and died, they had to have done it for just and righteous reasons. Continuing to demand honesty and truth in assessing history is the greatest honor we could bestow upon those who have paid the ultimate price for us. Because it ensures that in the going down of the sun, we will remember them, lest we forget. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And I want to thank you all for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Until next time, stay cool.